0: chapter 1. As we heard that story, where did your mind go as you were hearing that? As I've been reading this passage multiple times over the last week and meditating upon it, I can't help but think of what what a strange tale, what a strange way to start the gospel. It's interesting that this story doesn't appear in all of the, the Gospels. Why are we told so much about this very old couple? Why, why, why is this the way, which is good news, which is going to transform the world? Why, why would it begin like this? Why are we told this? And why do we need to know it? I've been pondering a lot about why a strange story would be the beginning of the greatest news on earth. And I'm going to share those ponderings with us, but now let us, um, let's open in prayer. Dearest God, we praise you that you are a speaking God, and that every word you have given us is there intentionally and with a great purpose to achieve. And we pray, Father God, may we be men and women who are listening with our minds and with our hearts to everything that you have to say to us this day, in the name of Jesus. Amen. At, uh, at university, I, uh, I used to quite enjoy, um, because people I found at university were, were far more open to talking about spiritual things. I used to enjoy the opportunity to have deep spiritual conversations with people. And occasionally, those spiritual conversations might lead on to a chance to read some of the Bible together. And the part of the Bible I used to love reading with people was Luke, Luke's Gospel. And the reason I absolutely loved reading Luke's gospel with people who weren't, weren't Christians is these opening verses in verses 1 to 4. Because as Luke opens up his gospel, as he starts this letter, uh, he, he gives us a great reason to have confidence. Because as we uh, see down here verse, from verse 3, Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, It seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you. Luke didn't witness the things that Jesus did, but he carefully investigated those things. And he's given us his orderly account. And what does his careful investigation look like? Well, it looks like him speaking to those eyewitnesses who did see it. And I just loved starting this journey with people about discovering who Jesus Christ was and starting on this footing, that actually our faith is not a faith of a philosophical idea. It is a faith which is grounded, rooted in historical reality, in the God-man, Jesus Christ, who has come to earth. So once Luke sets the scene with this great sort of foundation of this historical reality, the story then begins, and he continues by demonstrating how his story is part of a historical narrative which actually happened in the time of Herod. And actually, in Luke's Gospel, it is filled with these moments which place it in a historical time, and a historical moment. So here in the time of Herod, we're then introduced to this couple, Zechariah and Elizabeth. And they're a righteous couple. We hear that they're blameless. We hear that they observe the Lord's commandment. We hear, and that's, that's noteworthy. But as we're hearing about this righteous couple, well, immediately... There is a note of sadness. Look down at verse uh, verse 7. This righteous couple, but they had no children because Elizabeth was barren and they were both well on in years. Now this note of sadness, it has many dimensions. A dimension which maybe some in the room can very easily um, connect with. There is an emotional sadness to not being able to have, to have children and an emotional pain to that. And so Elizabeth and Zechariah would probably have been feeling that, that level of sadness, that emotional sadness, but then in the time of uh, when this book would have been written, in, in, in that historical context, there also would have been an economic sadness as well, economic sadness, because actually your children were your welfare state. Your children were the ones who looked after you when you were too old, to work on the fields or to complete your job or your task. So you needed children to look after you. So there would have been that economic sort of tension as well. But also there would have been some spiritual ambiguity about not having children in the time of Israel and the Jewish customs and laws and religion. Because in the the Jewish religion, if we were to look back over the Old Testament, I don't think there's a time, and I certainly couldn't find anywhere written in the Old Testament, which which clearly states to not have children is a sign of God's judgment. I don't think that's there. But again and again in the Old Testament, childlessness is a judgment which God puts on people who rebel against him. And so for Zechariah and Elizabeth, they would have been living in that tension of that spiritual ambiguity. Am I under that, that, that judgment of the Lord? And we know as readers... Because we've got verse six, which tells us that they're righteous and blameless. That's not true. We know that as readers that they're not childless. They are not childless because they don't have because they have rebelled in some way. We know that's not true. But for them, living in that moment, there would have been that spiritual ambiguity around that that question. And so, we introduce this couple. We introduce this note, this very real note of sadness. The story then moves on, both. Elizabeth and Zechariah from the the tribe of the priests, and Zechariah is a priest, and we read that he was was chosen by lot to go into the temple, and by lot gives the impression that it's random, but as the story goes on, we know that it wasn't really that random. And as Zechariah is chosen to go into the temple, he's not chosen to go into the most holy place, where only the priest once a year goes. No, no, he's chosen to go into the court before the most holy place, where the altar of incense is. And he enters that, that court, he lights the incense, which represents the prayers of the people going up to the Lord, and then he is confronted. He is confronted immediately by a messenger, by Gabriel himself. And what does this messenger have to say, have to communicate to Zechariah, this righteous man? He tells him that your prayers have been answered. And we wonder, okay, what prayer is this? And it seems to be the prayer of many years ago that him and Elizabeth must have asked. That they will have a son. They will have a child, even at their great age. And this child we hear, it's not going to be any ordinary child, no. This child is going to be great. And why is he going to be great? Well, he's going to be great, it seems, for two reasons. Firstly, he's going to be great because he's going to be set apart. We hear that he um, isn't going to uh, be a partaker of any alcohol. And to not be a partaker of any alcohol, this sort of takes us back into the Old Testament again, into the vow of the Nazarite. Now the vow of the Nazarite was an opportunity for a regular um, Jewish man or woman to show their devotion to the Lord and to set apart a time of their life to prayer and service to the Lord. And so they wouldn't drink and there's a few other things they wouldn't do uh, as well. And here we have John right from birth and his life is being set apart for the Lord. And he's filled by the Holy Spirit, which pre-Pentecost is a pretty big deal. So he's set apart for the Lord. He's filled by the Holy Holy Spirit. And why is he set apart? Why is he filled by the Holy Spirit right from, from, from being a babe? Well, because of his great task. And let's look down together to see what that task is. Verse 16. Verse 16. Here is his task. Many of the people of Israel will he bring back to the Lord their God. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Why is John set apart? Because he has this mighty task of bringing people back to God. And the language of, of John bringing people back to God, it is a language of turning. It is a language of, of, of fathers, of parents, turning towards their children. And it's sort of an image of them of them not looking after their children, to them taking care. It is that image of turning, of the wicked, turning from their wicked ways to the turning towards the wisdom of the righteous. There is an ethical dimension to this turning. There's an ethical dimension to that that, that, that understanding of being ready for the Lord, of being prepared for the Lord. And John is going to go out before the Most High, before the Lord, so that people may turn and people may be ready. And we read here that he's going to come in the spirit of Elijah. And what does that mean for, for Paul, to, not Paul, <laughs> for John to come in the spirit and the power of Elijah? Well, cast your minds back if you, you were here. A few months ago, we, uh, we did One Kings chapter 18, and we, we met Elijah. And the wonderful Samuel Barnes, he built us an altar. Uh, He built us an altar here. And the prophets of Baal, in the story, they have to try and light the altar. Uh, And there are hundreds of them uh, worshipping the mighty God Baal and trying to get Baal to shoot fire from heaven so the altar would light. And nothing happens. Nothing happens. And Elijah comes along and he throws water onto the altar to make it really hard. Oh, no, garnage. That's why you shouldn't move, walk around with your notes. Um, then you have uh, Elijah throwing water on the, on, on the altar, making it really, really hard for it to be uh, 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 light. And then he, as a single prophet, cries out to the living God. And then we had Samuel Barnes with his wonderful text skills, and the altar lit, and it was all very impressive. <laughs> and so as we were looking at that story of Elijah, this is what it means to come in the spirit of, and power of Elijah is to come and to confront a nation, a nation which has gone and followed idols. It is to come and confront a king who has gone and, and, and married a, a foreign woman who's worshiping foreign gods and he has gone after those gods rather than the living God. It is a, Elijah comes to turn a nation back to the Lord. John, as the prophet of the Most High, is coming to turn the people back to the Lord. That is how he will come, in the spirit and power of Elijah. And it's crucial that he does this, because in Malachi chapter 4, a, a prophecy is made that Elijah will come again to prepare the people for the Lord. And so as John comes in his power, he comes as Elijah to prepare the people for the Lord. But as, as Zechariah hears of this, how, how, how he will have a son, and there's someone with the prophet of the most high and will turn people's hearts, well, we have a twist in the tale. An incredible twist in the tale. Because Zechariah doesn't believe it. Not at all. Look down at his response. Verse 18. Zechariah asked the angel, How can I be sure of this? I'm an old man, and my wife is well on in years. He doesn't think that he and Elizabeth are going to have a child. How is that going to happen? That just seems ridiculous. In his sort of mind, it's like him and Elizabeth are walking into the maternity ward and the uh, the nurse they meet at the reception asks them both, are you here to visit a new grandchild who's just been born? And they're like, no, we're actually here to have a child ourselves. He's like, what? That's not going to happen. That's ridiculous. And Gabriel responds to this pretty strongly. He responds to it very strongly. He calls Zechariah out. This righteous man who's lived blamelessly, who's served the Lord, he calls him out. He says, No, this, this question, is this asking for proof, this, this is a sign. This is a sign of your own unbelief. That you don't believe that the Lord could do this. And 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 Gabriel causes John, not John, Zechariah, to be silent until John is born does that strike you as a bit harsh? <laughs> like, it, doesn't that strike you a bit harsh? Zechariah is a really old man. <laughs> like, is it, and his wife's very old. Like, for them to have a child, that just seems ridiculous. And for Gabriel to be so strong in his condemnation of that unbelief, doesn't it strike you as a bit harsh? And, and as we would read on in the story, we can see there's some benefit to the fact that, Ze- that Zechariah can't speak about it. He goes out into the temple, he can't tell everyone what he's just seen. So maybe there's a, a sense that the, the Lord wants to keep the, his lid on this yet. Yeah, he doesn't want lots of people to know, but still seems a pretty harsh response. Why is this not harsh of the Lord for Gabriel to silence Zechariah? And as I've been pondering that question, I, I wonder, if, is it partly because of who Gabriel is? It isn't an everyday occurrence for a messenger of the Lord, for the angel of God to come and speak to you in the temple of God, in his power. That's not an everyday occurrence. And this is Gabriel who stands in the presence of God, who's speaking on behalf of God. Actually, the significance of what Zechariah is doing in his unbelief is significant because of who is speaking to him. So I wonder if that's part of the reason why this isn't harsh. And I wonder if the other part of the reason why this isn't harsh is because through this judgment, actually Zechariah is reformed. Through this punishment, Zechariah is reformed. Because if we were to keep on following the story of Zechariah, as we get to the moment where, where Elizabeth does give birth, and at that moment of Elizabeth giving birth, everyone asks her, okay, who, who, what name do you want to give this child? And, uh, and Elizabeth says, I want to give this child the name John. And then the history of that time, you never gave a child a name which existed outside of your family. Every name came from within the family. And they were like, but no one in your family, there's no males called John in your family. So why on earth are you calling your, your son John? And then they go and ask Zechariah, and they're like, well, should we call this son John? And Zechariah... Unable to speak signals that he agrees he wants it to be called John. And why does he do that? Because here in the words of Gabriel, Gabriel tells him that he will have a son and that this son will be called John. And here we trace that story of Zechariah. We're sort of tracing a man who is being reformed. And it's interesting, isn't it, that as Gabriel shuts Zechariah's lips, he is opening his eyes. That as he shuts his lips, his eyes of faith are being opened wider, and he's being taught, trained to trust the living God. Through this, he's learning how living this living God is, how powerful this living God is. Then, even this elderly couple could give birth to a son. The story then uh, continues. Zechariah leaves the inner temple. Everyone's a bit confused about why he's silent. They know he must have seen something, but they're not sure what because he can't explain it. He goes home to Elizabeth, and Elizabeth becomes pregnant. And then we read the most incredible statement. And that final line, verse 25, hear what Elizabeth says. The Lord has done this for me, she said, in these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. Imagine. Imagine in a culture, in a time of spiritual ambiguity, where to be childless, people wonder if you're under judgment. Imagine an economic system which requires your children to be your welfare state. Just even imagine just the pain of not being able to have children. and now. Her disgrace has been removed. Her disgrace has been removed. Imagine what she must have felt like. Does this story of Elizabeth and Zechariah, does it remind you of any Old Testament stories? Any Old Testament stories come into our heads. Abraham and Sarah, yes, Elizabeth. Yeah, yeah, Abraham and Sarah. The first and the greatest of the patriarchs. Who was to start the mighty nation of Israel and the Lord God made his promises that through you you'll have descendants as numerous as stars in the the sky and the sand on the seashore and through you all nations will be blessed. And yet he's an old man with an old wife and they can't have children. So this story is sort of taking us back to Abraham and Isaac. And why why Abraham and Sarah? Why, why Why did God choose an old couple to have that child? Well, maybe so so that all would know that this great promise to the Lord was only going to be fulfilled by the Lord's hand and not by any human action. But does it take us back to any other stories in the Old Testament? As I was reflecting on it, my mind sort of went back to uh, the beginning of 1 Samuel and to Hannah. And Hannah, who was um, mocked relentlessly uh, by another wife, and she was unable to have children, And she was mocked, and it was just such a a cruel sort of scene. And then her husband, who was was a priest, and they were able then to have children. The Lord promised that they would have a son, and they had a son. And then Hannah gives this incredible song in her theological reflection on what's just happened. And it is a song which is filled of reversals. It's a song of the the hungry being filled and the greedy being brought low. It's a song of the poor being lifted up and, and, and the rich and the proud being brought low. It is a song filled with this barren woman who is unable to have children, being able to have sons. And, and, and the one who had many sons being brought low. And what is the cause in all of that mighty song? It is the Most High. He brings about this story of reversals. Why are we told this story? Why this be the way that the Lord God wants to start this good news? I've been pondering that all week. And I wonder if there's a few reasons. I wonder on one level, it it forces us to ask the question, are we ready for John the Baptist? And the sense of, Are we ready for him and then are we ready for Jesus? Because there is an ethical turning which John the Baptist represents, a turning from darkness to light, from wickedness to righteousness. Are we ready for John? Are we ready for the Lord Jesus? Are we listening to this, this, this messenger who has stood at the side of God and who is proclaiming the message of God? Are we ready for this messenger? And as I pondered even more, I wonder if the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth gives us a reason why. Why we might want to turn from darkness to light, from wickedness to righteousness. I wonder if the story of Elizabeth and Zechariah gives us that that reason why we'd want to listen. Because in this story, we're having a glimpse of what the Most High will do when Jesus returns in glory. For his first coming, Jesus paid for our sin and rose from the dead, showing that he was God, and now is seated on his throne. But in Jesus' second coming, his kingdom will be eternally established. And I wonder if this story is getting us ready for that second coming. A second coming where this God of reversals will enact these great reversals, where the humble will be lifted up and the proud will be brought low. Well, actually, this story of Zechariah and Elizabeth, who were righteous and blameless, yet childless, and yet were lifted up so that their disgrace was taken away, if that is what Jesus is going to achieve when he comes back and his kingdom is restored, And so suddenly we're given a reason why. This is why we want to listen. This is why we want to be prepared. This is why we want to turn. Because of what God is going to build. What he's going to achieve in that second coming of Jesus. Where the lowly will be lifted up. Where the righteous will be lifted up. Where the needy will be lifted up. That's why. And that is why I think God has given us this tale. Let's just meditate on God's word for a moment in our own hearts and then I'll close in prayer. Many of the people of Israel will he bring back to the Lord their God. Our dearest God, King of kings and Lord of lords, as we hear of John's birth, may we be a people who come back to the Lord. May we turn from darkness to light. May we ready our hearts. May we listen to your message. And help us, Father God, inspire our imaginations. Inspire our hearts and our minds to focus on that final day when Jesus will return. And sadness and tears and death and mourning and illness will become but a memory of a world that no longer is. And we will be one with our maker, standing in the new creation glories of a world where the lowly are lifted high. Prepare us for that day, Father. In the name of Jesus, amen.